0: So
1: know if i've ever been a mark for anyone as much as george south has been a mark
2: for paul jones yeah paul jones you mean george south senior yeah (laughs) because uh when i brought up paul jones's name just to george he went ow i love him (laughs) a funny story about george south and paul jones is when george was in elementary school he used to sign his papers paul jones wow oh wow he was that obsessed With Paul Jones, like here's this little kid who's named George South. Everybody knows George Uh, South. All of a sudden one day he's like, "No, I'm Paul Jones," (laughs) and just started signing his names on all his papers. Was that just a way to get away
1: with all the bad grades he was getting on the papers? (laughs) I assume so. I
2: I, I, he was already creating aliases. I mean, George has always been very much underneath the radar of all federal governments. So, (laughs) I mean, the man has mason jars buried in his backyard. So you gotta lay a foundation (laughs) at an early age. Exactly, and Paul Jones most certainly did that for him. so...
0: Alright, well welcome to Tim Bell Pod where we discuss the life of pro wrestlers in the Manning Cave. I'm Nick Alexander, joined as always by Michael Loving. Hello, hello, hello. I'm just going to say that over and over. And also pro wrestler, stand-up comic, bald-headed geek... <laughs> jake manning
2: a man who definitely has no loving in his name today uh <laughs> who just got off a plane and only has two hours of sleep oh. so if you hear me being a little punchy today and the mil- the couple weeks after that now the time step everything i apologize it's just it's the lex luger thing get your second wind do two moves and then you win i'm actually trying to get like the rick flair thing where i'm like like all hopped up from the night before <laughs> yeah, yeah. cutting promos on DBS going don't cut me off <laughs> Rick the lights are turning off shit
0: <laughs> alright well thanks for listening and help us defeat the evil podcast algorithms by leaving us a review and a rating on wherever you're listening find us on social media at Tim Bell Pod Today, we are talking about Territory Legend, a guy who spent 30 years in the business, having tremendous success wherever he went. It is
2: George South's favorite wrestler, Paul Jones. Number one. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, you know who both those people are. If not, you're going to be educated on both in the same podcast, Uh, except... uh, you know when we do George South's podcast, there'll be a lot more crime. Oh, God, that's like, not. You know, like,
0: not do that's not bring that up.
2: <laughs> oh no, George brings it up every time. Oh, geez.
1: every time I, I tell I, you conquered things like that, you remind people that you
2: beat it. Every time I interview him for like a ten bell pod, like quote or something like that, the next thing he'll say to me is like, "Oh boy, I can't wait for you to cover me on your <laughs> podcast." <laughs> that, that's someone sent us a
0: message on Facebook and was like, "I would love to be on your podcast," and I was like, "No, you wouldn't." <laughs> oh,
2: that guy. You talked to that guy. He yeah. talked to me about how did this get booked. Uh, uh, and, okay. and but then he—I saw he messaged on Ten Bell Pod. I'm like, no, I don't think you yeah, know how this y- works. Y-
0: that means you're gonna be dead. All right, so this episode for me—I I won't speak for Micah, but 70s wrestling is not in my wheelhouse. Nick loves
1: it. He's lying. So,
0: uh, Jake, we need you to pretend this episode is a six-foot-six, 300-pound ex-football player with two months of wrestling school underneath him. We're going to need you to carry this episode.
2: (laughs) Oh, I I thought you were going to say that this is going to be a six foot six African American woman, and we want you to fall in love with this episode. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'll marry this podcast. We're starting (laughs) off good.
0: (laughs) To someone who has never seen Paul Jones wrestle or even manage,
2: how would you describe him? Most people, when they hear the name Paul Jones, they think of manager. Like, that's a meaning. Everybody thinks manager, Paul Jones, army, but like, every time paul jones name gets brought up in front of like terry funk or jack briscoe when he was alive like all these guys that were known as like some of the best wrestlers in the world they'd be like oh legends yeah they're like oh, Paul Jones, he was one of the best ever. And yeah. you always hear that rumbling, especially in this area of the Carolinas. People always want to bring up, like, well, oh, you know, Paul Jones, he was a manager, but he was a really good wrestler. Yeah. And, you know, this area of, you know, Charlotte, he was he was legendary. I mean, so legendary. In fact, he was such a big star. He actually had his own, like, auto body shop here. He was like, he <laughs> was like you know, there's that level of fame in the territory areas. Yeah. Like, I just saw a commercial for Jerry Lawler's uh, furniture warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, <laughs> like that was always the game when you're in the territories especially in the 70s like you move around a territory to territory you you find a place that you like and- and then all of a sudden you buy a business with all your pro wrestling money and then you just settle down in that yep. place and that's where you live. It's like
1: Abdullah had like a barbecue joint or something and then Bam Bam opened a burger thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. All, yeah. so
2: that was always that was always the game with like the old timers in the 70s. It's like, all right, I'm gonna take out this pro wrestling money, I'm gonna buy a couple car washes, an auto body shop, maybe <laughs> a record right. service and then I now have a business and that's how we go. Which Paul Jones did in Charlotte, but like, as far as like being a wrestler, I and mean, he was kind of a shorter guy and there was always that sense of it being like a big man's business, but the, the clips that I've seen of the way that Paul Jones wrestles, much in the same sense of like a Bill Dundee or Jerry Lawler, like you couldn't figure out what his height was. <laughs> Just because like he wrestled like so big, yeah, yeah. And he it just and the way he would sell and, yeah. and the way he would punch and his offense and, and everything everything was believable enough, even though there's the size difference. And also too, like he just looked like a dude. Like yeah. he had like he a was normal just a guy, like a, like parted yeah. hair, you know, and and had a decent little body. And he was an athlete, but he wasn't like you know Ricky Steamboat, who was his tag team partner, and he <laughs> and he wasn't like Blackjack Mulligan, and he didn't have like big blonde hair like Ric Flair. Yeah, but at the same time too just as believable but like kind of viewed as like a real tough guy and kind of a wrestler's wrestler
1: he when i first saw him just the first impression i got was he wasn't as like ripped and as built as bruno but just kind of that every man's kind of just going in there wrestling big barrel chest yeah like, barrel chested just like and the fans loved him he was baby face as hell and I just bruno without the the car lifting muscles was how i first <laughs> interpreted
0: paul jones well, let's get into the life and career of Paul Jones. Paul Frederick was born June 16th, 1942 in Port Arthur, Texas. And as a teenager, he was a Golden Glove boxer winning the Texas Heavyweight and Light Heavyweight Championship. Paul was trained to wrestle by Morris Siegel and legendary Houston wrestler and Houston promoter Paul Bosch.
2: I mean, Paul oh, Bosch was... I and mean, he ran Houston, and, and Houston was such a good territory that it was just Houston. Like, he was in the middle of Texas, and you had world class over in Dallas, you had Amarillo and you had all these other territories just kind of around but houston was its own little thing that they could run like a territory system in a very small area because houston drew so well but also two world-class guys would come over and wrestle in houston and then also houston wrestling had a working relationship with WWF and paul bosch um just legendary promoter class act all the way through nothing but good things about who he was as an individual and just had lifelong friendships i believe even with like Stu hart and and like mcmahon's so just old classy wrestling promoter just definition of the word
0: paul frederick would make his pro wrestling debut in houston in 1961 wrestling under the name paul jones Not long after, he'd head over to San Francisco and Roy Shire's territory. He'd also work a little in Championship Wrestling of Florida, but this is not the big famous run he's going to have much later. Um, After breaking into the business, Paul knew his next logical move would be going to the land of kangaroos
2: and honey. Australia Are they known for honey? <laughs> Is that a thing? I mean, I could ask somebody. I know somebody who lives in Australia. I, I never fi- heard the honey I thing. I never heard the thing honey either. Uh, I could uh, find out honey for it sure. Was a, it was, I know vegans. It was clearly
0: that. a bad play on milk and honey.
2: Oh, uh, it. Uh, yeah, it was.
0: You're right on the bad
2: part. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you're definitely right on the uh, bad part. You're wrong on the honey part, by the way. Just to remind you again.
1: But you know what? It evened out with the good and the bad. So we're like,
0: we're neutral kicking butt. All right, I'm going to follow it up with this joke. He headed down to Australia's version of World Championship Wrestling, where Paul Jones had to do the airplane spin in the opposite direction. Uh, oh, <laughs> uh, because it's,
2: God, it's how, Australia. How much Australia, material do you have? Next? You want me to carry this episode, or you got more Australia? (laughs)
0: After returning to the United States, he'd hit the territories hard, making a name for himself. He worked for Pacific Northwest Wrestling in Oregon,
2: holding
0: (laughs) holding, uh, the Pacific Northwest Heavyweight Championship twice. He'd also win the Tag Team Championship with Pepper Martin. And here he was young Paul Jones because there was already a Paul Jones.
1: So, you know, just... Throw on throw on a little personifier and there we go.
0: I like that. that's not a common name at all. There's one that's old, there's one that's young, you know. We'll yeah, that's another thing
1: doing research for this episode. Typing in Paul Jones. To, uh, <laughs> so many I mean, geez, immediately goes to wrestling. Tons
0: of research so I don't have to go
1: through anything. <laughs> Beautiful. In
0: nineteen sixty seven, Paul hit up the Von Erichs pre WCW territory, big time wrestling. He'd go to Japan with Japan Pro Wrestling Alliance, making repeat tours in 70 and 71. In 68, Paul Jones would make his debut in the promotion that would make him a star Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, just miles away from the Manning Cave. There, he'd form a tag team with Nelson Royal, you have no idea how hard it was. <laughs> I wanted to say MMA fighter Roy Nelson so bad. <laughs> I had to like make specific notes to not say Roy Nelson. Well,
2: Ho- hopefully he's in better shape than Roy yeah, Nelson. Hopefully. Oh, Nelson Royal? Oh, I, that'd be a fair fight. That's a push. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. You, yeah. gambling man Micah, that's a push. I would not put money mm. against Nelson Royal. Coin flip. No, Nelson Royal was a tough SOB he was
1: that would be a great fight because roy's known for his chin and his big right hand so yeah. shit man oh That's nelson a was
2: a classical wrestler also too i believe nelson royal he was the nwa junior heavyweight champ about the same time that harley race was the nwa champ and you know the nwa with them going around to territory to territory to territory to territory You know you you need somebody who could leave that territory with that belt so that's why you put the belt on someone like jack briscoe or harley race a super tough guy also the same goes with the junior heavyweight title so obviously that just goes to show that nelson royal was a competent individual knowing that no promoter was going to screw him over because Nelson was gonna leave the ring with the belt, no matter what. They weren't gonna do any shenanigans, and if there's any issue backstage, Nelson was like, nope, this is not what we agreed upon ahead of time, this is not uh, sanctioned by the NWA, this is not the finish I was given to me by the NWA president, I am not doing that. And if you have a problem with it, I'll meet you in the ring. (laughs) And that's the type of individual that Nelson Roy was, and if I'm not mistaken, Nelson Royal was the guy who wrestled Dynamite Kid at the Stampede. Yeah, I think you mentioned that. Yes. Oh, so, I mean, um, he was the guy that made Dynamite Kid. But Paul and Nelson uh, formed a tag team. And from my research with George, which was extensive for this entire episode, George was talking about how it was always this thing with like old timers when they would team together. As soon as they would break up, they would never talk to each other again. This really weird – like, you always hear the story of Dusty and Dick Murdoch. Like, one day, like, Dusty woke up and saw, you know, Dick Murdoch in the, the other twin bed in the, in their hotel room and just saw him. <laughs> they were it was broken a, up. And he's and he, <laughs> he just, he just like, I got to get out of here. I can't, I can't be around this guy anymore. I love him like a brother, but I can't be around him anymore. And then, then just split off. It was kind of that way with Paul Jones and Nelson Royal. And they just – when they broke up, like they didn't talk for years. And then when Nelson passed away, George had to take Paul to the Nelson's funeral. And Paul was talking about how he hadn't talked to Nelson in years, maybe even decades. Wow. And he's just like, I always meant to. I just, I mean, I saw him so much. I just, just stopped talking to him Amen. out of the blue. I don't know. It's just those old times. They get weird. And as they get older, they don't want to like, be reminded of death by looking at somebody yeah. else or they're closer to death by seeing somebody get older because, you know, we all we all feel like we're 17 until we see one of our high school friends like, oh, gosh, they've aged. I've aged, too. And you just I, treat it like it's contagious. Yeah, it, that's basically <laughs> like how that it, I'm good. But, uh, but yeah, it is funny considering, you know, there was a time that Paul was settled here in Charlotte and also too, Nelson actually had a Western wear store in Mooresville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I mean, actually, it's, I believe it's still named Nelson Royals Western oh, yeah. Wear. Road trip. You should. It's, it's a cool place. I've always <laughs> wanted to go and buy, like, cowboy boots there because there's always this legendary story of the Rock and Roll Express in their heyday, like in the prime of their career. What were they
1: like, mid-'80s, early-'80s.
2: Yeah, it would have been, like, the, like their first run here and yeah. then pulling up in, like, some Trans Am, <laughs> Ricky and Robert, and they had Billy Jack Haynes, and they all bought, like, snakeskin boots. Wow. Like with one of their checks, and they bought like three pairs of them. and White like- Snake is just blasting the fuck out of a <laughs> <Yeah>. car. Yeah, <laughs> and, like, and you know, like those boots are super expensive, but that was always the thing. Like some of the boys, when they get cowboy boots, they go to Nelson Royals uh, Western wear. Also, too, a lot of Jim Crockett, <laughs> Vignettes that were shot with like horses and and ranch stuff was shot at Nelson Royals Ranch. Yeah, well, not ranch, right, no. but his farm right next oh, to the okay. Western store, which gotcha. is now inside of Mooresville city limits. So, like, there's this whole thing like, like ho- the horse with Trigger and Baby Doll riding off into the sunset. That's all like Nelson Royals horses and his farm. So, also, too, Nelson had like a a ring set up like a, in a barn on his farm, and they would train wrestlers in the back of there. So That sounds kind of amazing. Yeah.
0: Paul's first mid-Atlantic run is mostly tagging with Roy Nelson. And in September of September. You sept- mean the Nelson Royals? <laughs> Fuck <laughs> me. I, I, I really wasn't going to bring it up because I thought this was going to be a bit Nick was doing the rest of the day. That <laughs> <laughs> was genuine. I'm going to get that out. <laughs> no, this is good.
1: No, this is in. This is uh, in. Totally this it. is totally in. If you delete this, we're fucking pissed.
0: Yeah. Paul's first mid mid-Atlantic run was tagging with Nelson. You're even reading it off the screen. I know. <laughs> All right. And in uh, September of 70, Paul and Nelson would beat the Minnesota Wrecking Crew for his first NWA Atlantic Coast Tag Team Championship.
2: Which Minnesota wreck, Wrecking Crew? O- Ole and Gene.
0: Oh, yeah. Fuck Gene.
2: I've, uh, don't skip. Put some I respect know, on Gene Anderson's I name, suck. son. I suck. You suck real bad. (laughs) I was talking to to George about that feud, and George grew up such a big fan of Paul Jones and loved Paul Jones. So obviously, he despised Ole Anderson and the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. And as George became closer friends with Paul, Paul, knowing that about George, and knowing the way, you know, the perception of professional wrestling being... On the up and up and bad guys hate good guys and good guys yeah. hate each other like paul would mess with george and be like you know me and ollie were best friends <laughs> <laughs> that whole time when like he was roughing me up and he attacked us at, at the charlotte coliseum or the park center or wherever we wrestled that was what we we caught we had fish it we f- fished together earlier in that day we were hanging out we locked eyes and smiled at each smiled, other we <laughs> smiled at each other we went hunting after that and george is like don't tell me any of <laughs> this you are ruining my child you're telling me the santa sky's G- falling the sky's falling santa claus is real paul jones do not do this to me park center that's grady cole center yep yep okay. they they used to that before they were drawing larger crowds weekly they would be at Park Center, the Grady Cole Center. That yeah. was their weekly spot, and then, of course, as the business grew, they had to do the Charlotte Coliseum. Yeah. They would still do the Coliseum for bigger shows, but the weekly basis run shows was at Park Center, and then, as that business grew, they obviously had to run the Coliseum every. Every week.
1: And Grady Colson, I mean, that thing's still deceptive. It still holds like what, twelve hundred or something?
2: Close to two thousand or something yeah, like I'm that. But more. that's what and that's where George saw a lot of his first wrestling matches. Especially mostly because of Paul Jones. Paul Jones was the first ever wrestler he saw on TV. Yeah. He saw Paul Jones.
1: <laughs> Immediate bam, right in the face. He, yeah, he's just
2: like that guy. <laughs> that's my guy. That, that's my guy forever. Yeah. And then he, like, hounded his, like, older brother to take him to to Park Center to see him wrestle, and George would hang out kind of where the wrestlers would be, like, watching each other's matches. Because that's what they used to do back then. They didn't have monitors in the back. Yeah. They, and and also, to like... And just they,
1: screaming, how's it going? <laughs>
2: well, and, <this laughs> and they thing, relay messages. Yeah, well, that was the thing. It was, like, yeah. it wasn't, like it wasn't like the business was in the 80s like the 70s was a little bit different like obviously you had several hundred people but like there'd be like certain corners that were kind of open where wrestlers could kind of wander up and watch the matches Mm, so like george figured out where the guys were wandering up so as a little kid he just ran up there and he saw paul jones like oh that's paul jones (laughs) and so he like went up and like hounded paul and asked him all these questions and paul would be like Hey, kid, you want to do me a favor? And, of course, George's like, oh, whatever you want. Whatever you want, Paul Jones. Whatever you want. Whatever you want. And he'd be like, uh, hey, kid, will don't you give me a cup of coffee? <laughs> and so george would run off and, and george would get no money for it he, yeah. oh, you know he, he wouldn't be like here's here was well, I a get dollar paid in something that doesn't
1: matter he gets the appreciation yeah, of paul but see, jones but, but
2: paul jones didn't even say here's a dollar kid go give me a coffee right. george was just like oh i'm going and yeah. then he he'd take money out of his own pocket go get paul jones right, a cup right. of coffee paul's holding the money out and be like where's george yeah exactly it, oh, it was very much like that situation and then as soon as george comes back guess what no paul jones oh, oh shit because he just is like and, and george always asked him like why'd you always make me get you coffee and you're never there and he goes kid i was trying to get you to leave me alone <laughs>
1: you're just you're asking say, so many questions some other little kid already got me my cup of coffee <laughs> quicker
2: than you did <laughs> but another story since we're on george's fandom of paul jones <laughs> and this, this is roughly about the time that that grew was that um george wrote a piece of fan mail to uh, jim crockett promotion's office talking about how much you love paul jones and and george just talked about how cool this was he just wrote a letter from the fan talking about how much paul jones was his favorite wrestler and then jim crockett's office mailed him back a five by seven picture of paul jones that was personalized oh man like not stamped because that's, they because they, that's that's they did do some of the stamps like i actually have a stamped signature of jack briscoe and uh, i think harley race from a some special event that they some title match that they had and then and and, and, and those are stamped autographs but this particular time this autograph that george got was an actual personalized autograph legit signed and and everything and george was like told me he goes he goes i don't know where my grandbabies are right now (laughs) i don't know where my kids are i have no idea where they are on this earth but I know exactly <laughs> where this five by seven <laughs> autographed picture of Paul Jones is. I could tell you right now, I could close my eyes. I could lead you into my house right now. I could and I telepathically could, link with it. I could, I, I, I could tell you what it is feeling right now. <laughs> that is how linked I am to this.
1: The closest I ever got was, I think I wrote Dominique Wilkins. <laughs> A uh, a fan letter, and he sent me back just a form letter. NBA uh, Atlanta Hawks, great. Grew up in Atlanta. Loved Dominique Wilkins. Weren't anything in this world. I got a form letter back, and it, it was cool. But it still was like,
2: <sighs> shit. Yeah, we were that last generation of fan mail, mail.
1: Yeah, I guess now
0: I should be very appreciative. I got anything at all because that's just. I bet the letters never got to Dominique just like Dominique never got to the NBA 5. <laughs> oh, fuck <you. laughs> <laughs> with fucking cheating-ass Larry Bird
1: holding down the Eastern Conference, how the fuck is he supposed to do anything, huh? Well, I mean, Dirty he, motherfucker. He's playing with a
2: midget Spud Web, What do you expect? <laughs> hey, uh, he won the slam dunk contest, oh, goddammit. it! shut the fuck up. Can he shoot a three? Does he Steph Curry? <laughs> I don't think so. And this has been an episode of The, the- Herd. <laughs> Wait, real quick. Nick, did you ever write uh,
1: any uh, fan letter or anything when you were a little kid? Want to get a response?
0: No. No Hogan? Uh, no I, nothing? My But one time, John Casey, the kicker for the Panthers, went oh, into no. my dad's work, and my dad got an autograph, and he spelled my name wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so.
2: And it's Nick, right? Yeah. It's Nick. <laughs> I
0: like, Come on, John Casey. K-N-I-K. <laughs> I, th- I think he tried to write Nicholas, and it ended up being like i don't know
2: well is that why your twitter handle is what it is John Casey? <laughs> oh maybe subconsciously oh. holy
0: shit god yeah, we this just
2: freuded your ass, ass. I know. <laughs> that before we get off fan mail yeah. i should bring up this story this is, this is probably the the best story this is actually how i first became aware of george south and this is all going to tie all, all this back up in this whole talk about fan mail there was a competition with the uh, mid-atlantic championship wrestling where to vote on your favorite wrestler the most popular wrestler what you had to do is as a fan was mail in postcards with the name of your favorite wrestler and so like whoever collected the most postcards with their names on it like this is a person my favorite wrestler they would win and they would be presented with a gold watch so george loving paul jones so much George is like oh I have to make sure that Paul Jones wins this gold watch. And so George cut grass all summer long so he could save up money to buy as many postcards as possible so Paul Jones could win that watch. And sure enough, Paul Jones won that watch. Years later, oh my gosh, years later, George obviously had befriended Paul and he was at his auto body shop and George was there with his. It, the story has changed over there. George George did was saying, "Car he had? No, no, no. You know, it, no, it changes with like, he, did he have George Jr. or did he have like uh, his youngest son or did he have one of his grandbabies on his uh, knee? Okay, it, okay. That that kind of so the time George's timeline is very uh, yeah. fluctuating, but his but his actual structure of the story right, is right. still stories ha- on the
1: grass. It's always going to say South, yeah, which kid? Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, did they they shoot Kennedy or they shoot another president <laughs> that was driving through Dallas? That's usually the debate, but." He was just in Paul Jones' office. He was visiting his auto body shop. Obviously, Paul knew about that story, about the gold watch. And then all of a sudden, like, Paul was just talking to George. And then Paul just opened up his drawer of his desk and pulled out the gold watch. (laughs) And George recognized it. And and Paul didn't even say, like, you remember this. Like, he just picked it up. And, like, George knew immediately what it was. And and as George always says, I dropped my grandbaby. I just... (laughs) (laughs) And he started started looking at at the watch. And then all of a sudden... Paul forgot that I had the watch, and I'm like, I'm, I'm I'm gonna get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so he tried to make a break for. Oh, no, Did
1: <laughs> and then he literally run because you're supposed to play cool with that. And just oh no, kinda, he play cool. Okay, he play cool. He played
2: cool. Walk and then of the all storm. of a sudden, like Paul realized what happened, and uh, Paul walked out, and George's like, Oh, oh no, I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of here. And he's trying to crank up the car. All of a sudden, Paul knocked on the window. And as George always described, he goes, I rolled down the window just enough that you couldn't fit a watch through there. <laughs> but I rolled it down just enough that I could hear what he was saying and pretend like I cared well, before that's, I drove that's off. A thin line. Paul goes, Hey, I didn't tell you you could keep that. <laughs> and George just like hard just broke and he's just and he goes to reach for it. And then Paul goes, I'm just kidding, kid. You can keep Oh, it. shit. Uh, that, mean Joe green Yeah. And, and that, exactly how George describes it. He was, Mean Joe Green, but then he, like, turned mean again. Like, why'd you have to mess up with my emotions <laughs> like that?
1: It's a roller coaster. That's a roller coaster.
2: But to bring this full circle, this story got put into, I believe, Pro Wrestling Illustrated. Yeah. And before I moved Mechler to- didn't get this shit. <laughs> bef- I, I believe it was like, it was like The Wrestler. It was one of those yeah. type magazines. And- Before I got into professional wrestling, before I moved to Charlotte, I remember seeing a picture of these two men holding up a watch with the same exact story. And I remember reading this story. I'm like, this is a cool story. I'm like, who are these two old guys holding up this watch? And, never the- them together. and I never yeah. put it all together. And then when George told me this story, <laughs> like, after knowing him for two years, I go, oh my gosh, I remember reading this article yeah. in a wrestling magazine about this whole situation. Yeah, so You're the guy crazy. that's training me. This world is way too small. <laughs> yeah, this is tough. this, is, like, this you, is a you, simulation. You, this is all a simulation. You believe it at first. You're like, no, this, no, what? I'm in the matrix.
0: What? You need to ask George to hold the watch and then distract him, and then leave so that we have the watch. Uh, Or would he murder you immediately? Oh, no, 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 no.
2: no. I I have uh, strict instructions. Uh, And it goes something like this. Listen, bullet, when I die, (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I, I you, didn't you, want to say You need, when you you need when to I,
2: save all of my wrestling artifacts Because <laughs> my kids are just going to sell them To the highest bidder I need uh, you uh. to save every last one of them I will tell you where all the mason jars are at At a certain time And I will tell you how to divvy them all up With, with my grandbabies Just my grandbabies, not my kids <laughs> <laughs> My mom has the same policy On all her Barbie dolls
1: uh. They're all in the attic They're all entrusted to my sister Because my mother does not trust me to hold on to them, cause she has like nineteen fifties, like original shit. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. My my mom doesn't trust me. George South said, "Paul Jones kept me out of trouble." <laughs> when Paul Jones lost the U.S. belt, he said he stayed out of school for three days because he was so emotionally devastated by everything. I mean, what George what George talks about with how much emotional effect Paul had, it really does take you back to when you're a kid and that first. I don't know if it's even a fictional character, somebody in a movie, somebody in a book, somebody on a show, you identify with them, you have such attachment to them that if their life goes bad, your life goes
2: bad. Mm -hmm. And it's
1: like, shit. I actually
2: skipped a team-required fundraiser uh, in college, just so I could see Triple H come out on Raw after (laughs) an injury. (laughs) What the fuck? And all he did was just come out and do his pose. I was about to say, he just did his pose. I was pose. waiting for something a lot more, Jake. No, he just did I his pose in the ring, it right, right before that WrestleMania, where he wrestled Jericho, where he just came back from that torn quad, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was just coming back on Raw. Like he was just showing up in like that leather jacket denim combo <laughs> and just doing his thing, looking jacked as shit. But I, I skipped a team fundraiser and had to. I had to do all types of extra calisthenics. Like I had a whole physical punishment. I had to have the next day, and we did workouts at five a.m. Yeah, I was told that we, I had to come in a half an hour early and basically run through the gauntlet just so I could have watched Triple H walk out <laughs> I on don't, a I Raw. Don't. <laughs> I wish I had a good story like I skipped school to see Demolition
0: Man or something, but I really <laughs> don't. All right. In April of 72, Paul Jones left the Carolinas, and he headed down to championship wrestling from Florida. He turned hill, and he started going by number one, Paul Jones. And at this point, Paul had traveled to different countries. He's working the road. He's won some belts. And this, I think Florida is when it all really comes together and he
2: becomes a standout. Yeah, Mr. Number one, uh, Paul Jones. I was going to say Mr. Number one, George South, because <laughs> that, I mean, that's literally what George, why George calls himself Mr. Number one.
0: That's no, very uh, Bruno and Larry
2: with the yes, living, living legends. legends. Exactly.
0: In Florida, Paul would catch fire as a singles competitor winning a tournament for the NWA TV title. He'd work with the likes of Tim Woods, The Great Malenko, Jerry and Jack Briscoe, and Dory Funk. in CWF... He'd win all the belts. Uh, wrestling belts, belts for pants. He'd steal yellow belts from children taking karate. <laughs> oh. pa- Paul held the NWA Florida TV Championship, the Florida Heavyweight Championship, and Brass Knuckles Championship at the same time. Damn, that's it, that's like uh, Lance Storm in late-era WCW. <laughs> Paul winning the Florida Heavyweight Championship, though, would lead to Paul Jones a lundra blazing that shit into a river. In uh, 1972, throwing the championship belt off the Gandhi Bridge in Tampa Bay, an angle that would be copied throughout wrestling history quite a bit.
2: Stone Cold Steve Austin, I think,
0: yep. did it with the rocks, belts. Briscoe took the information from there and just like, hey, let's do this angle. Yeah. Legend has it that a baby catfish ate the title, and when the catfish grew up, it grew up to be none other than John Cena. Oh
1: my god. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's the stupidest origin
1: story uh, I've
2: ever heard. Especially like John Cena grew up in like New England. Like, <laughs> you and you, your logic logistical bullshit. You couldn't even say Bray Wyatt like that would have been a good one because like, I would assume he grew up in Florida or you say and that title belt grew up to be Kendall Wyndham like that would even <laughs> work too. Kendall <laughs>
0: Wyndham Jesus. In 1974, Paul left Championship Wrestling of Florida and went back home to Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, where he would settle down and become a mainstay for the company. In April of 74, him and Bob Bruggers beat the Andersons (laughs) for the Mid-Atlantic Tag Team Championship. They uh, lost the belts to a very young Ric Flair and Rip Hawk that July. But just four days later Paul won his first Mid-Atlantic TV Championship defeating Ivan Koloff and he held the championship until October when he lost it back to Ivan. Paul would win the TV title five times over the next four years because Paul is Magneto with wrestling belts. Jones and Tiger Conway Jr. would team up and win a tag team championship from Flair and Rip Hawk in December of 74 before dropping the belts back off to the Andersons in 75. Then Paul Jones began feuding with Johnny Valentine. In March of 75, Jones defeated Valentine to win the Mid-Atlantic Heavyweight Championship just to have it stripped from him 10 days later. In May of 75, Paul Jones and Wahoo McDaniel defeated the Andersons to win the Tag Team Championship just to lose it back to them
2: the next month. Why so many short runs with Tag champions? Well. Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling Crockett's was a tag team territory Mm -hmm. for the most part like it was always like building towards like a tag team match you would have an issue with two wrestlers two other wrestlers who would be interjected some way somehow and then we would build to a tag team main event and so obviously the tag team belts had a little bit more prestige than probably the mid-atlantic uh championship so there's a lot of oh, movement yeah. a lot of push that's why you that seems you,
1: crazy now yeah
2: <laughs> yeah but that, that's what the crockets was known in the 70s it was more of a tag team territory that's awesome. and we're, that's why the anderson's were, were such a big star they were the biggest draw yeah and as probably a part of the reason why it was a tag team territory is when you had you know the minnesota wrecking crew and gene and ole yeah. you're just making Tons of money. That's that was always the thing about Oli. People used to give him a hard time They're like, ah, you didn't, you know, go to all these other territories and you weren't that big of a draw. Why would I? Exactly. <laughs> he goes, why would I? I was making so much money in Charlotte because yeah, it was a tag team territory. We were a great tag team. We were a great foil, you know. And I don't know if they ever were. There's ever a point where they were a babyface. I'm sure they had their fans and they were cheered, but I don't think... smart marks.
1: Back then. Yeah, I'm sure there. I'm
2: sure there, were, I'm sure there were. I'm sure those people that really appreciated yeah. the Andersons. But yeah, like that's basically why there's all this movement because it's it's the main belt, it's the main thing, okay. it's the main attraction of the entire territory. Huh. Would you say
0: those are the most important tag belts from all the territory, like the territory
2: days? You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna say yeah. I would yeah. say probably the one that probably meant the most. You know that probably you know like it kind of made you a big deal. Yeah. You know if you were the main event tag team in Jim Crocker promotions in the late seventies that means you were a big deal. You're probably one of the better tag teams in the country. Also, too good territory. Yeah. Home every night. You're also making a lot of money yeah, cuz you're yeah. you're going to, you know, Richmond, Norfolk, someplace in West Virginia or you get Raleigh, you got South- Charleston, South Carolina, you got oh, Wilmington. Columbia. Yeah, Columbia, you you got all these these towns all over the place and you're just you're making good money they're large large areas they got big arenas and if you got a hot angle and you're selling those things out you're gonna make big money
0: so on October 4th 1975 Johnny Valentine Ric Flair David Crockett Bob Bruggers and Tim Woods would be in the famous plane crash that broke most of their backs and it eventually killed the pilot Johnny Valentine was the US heavyweight champion at the time so sadly and obviously the title had to be Vacated. That would lead to Paul starting to work with Terry Funk, first losing to him in the finals for Johnny's U.S. title, and then Paul Jones would beat Funk for the championship in a rematch later that month.
2: And Terry Funk has, I think, even gone on record of one of his favorite opponents as Paul Jones. Nice.
0: Paul went on to trade the championship with Blackjack Mulligan, holding it a total of three times before <laughs> his final reign in December of 76. In 75, Jones began teaming with Ricky Steamboat, having its couple of runs as tag champs until December 78, when Jones attacked Steamboat at the end of a
2: battle royal turning hill. Oh, let's let's clarify here. Because Paul
1: does a lot in shoot interviews. Yes,
2: let <laughs> us clarify what happened between him and Steamboat. Now, he started tagging with Ricky, Ricky Steamboat very early in Steamboat's career. And one of the things the promotions did is they had Ricky and Paul spend a lot of time together in public because that's one of the things in the territory system. Not only do you have this TV, not only do you have all these promotions that are already you know lock and step already with newspaper and radio. That's already just you know here's the new information, here's the show, here's yeah, and it's 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 just very easy. Twenty four seven. Yeah, it's just like a machine as as it goes. But also too in the territory systems in the era of kayfabe. especially in a small area like charlotte you know another big thing is when you're out in public and you're friends with somebody you Go and hang out with them so they made sure that paul and ricky did stuff together <laughs> go and like they, they tell him like go to a, a park with your family <laughs> and just like play frisbee barbecue out ha- let everybody see how good of friends you guys are maybe if you guys want to invest in some businesses together That's just, so you, just, insane. You, just and, you know and steamboat had a gym so like paul make sure you work out at steamboat's gym you know you're really pushing it forward because you're trying to get these people to take it what you're saying on camera is viable like this is my friend i will fight for my friend and I'll, I'll die for my friend
1: it's like they thought they lived in the age of like tmz or twitter where everything they did would be documented and put out there and they knew they had to do it but instead of that it was just word of mouth yeah. and with word of mouth if it was bad then it was going to just ruin you immediately which
2: is which is funny and, and you know we talk about the evolution of professional wrestling you know the way it's, it's evolved but if you if you game is to make people feel something emotional like you said in this era of TMZ when everybody's watching every minute detail I think you need to take a hint from these territory eras (laughs) if you just do it like that and work an angle that way and then you know that everything that happens outside in the world in front of people where they all have cameras that's all a facade to push along a story and they pushed along great. Everybody bought, bought that, you know, Paul and Ricky were good friends and then they have this battle royal and George tells it in great detail. <laughs> As it was laid out, it was it was this battle royal for it was one of those famous five thousand dollar battle royals. So went
1: it two rings?
2: Two ring two battle rings, royal. Yeah. And you know, here they are, the two two friends that have been seen <laughs> barbecuing in the park. Paul works out at Steamboat's gym. Godfather to my children. Yeah, all of those (laughs) things. Just all of it. And they're just standing in the ring together, and they're going to split this money together because they're, you know, good friends. And soon, Steamboat turns his back. (laughs) Paul throws him over the top. But then here's the thing, though. Here's the kicker. To this day, when people talk about such, such a dastardly act by paul jones and they ask like these long time fans and i've seen this happen before i like like fan fest conventions people walk up to paul jones and they go why why did you turn on <laughs> how, steamboat how could you do that and paul will look them dead in the eye with all seriousness and say to them i didn't turn on steamboat steamboat turned on me
1: and in all his shoots he makes that a point yeah. too of all this when he's doing even shoots he will keep kayfabe
2: about that fucking ankle <laughs> to the day he to him and bob orton refusing to say that his his arm has healed from that that uh, when it was in the cast but before that also too, to to backing up to paul would would make certain shots to florida every once in a while yeah, you know, before he turned heel like he would make shots to florida or he you know, would take a vacation or whatever and he would come back early and they would do something where like flair would be in a cage and he would just be getting the crap beat out of him like he'd be like flair versus Olie in a cage with gene anderson as a special guest referee and then all of a sudden it's like both anderson's beating up yeah rick flair then all of a sudden the door swings open at, at park center and then here comes paul jones who hasn't been in the territory for 2 weeks yeah. comes run in and makes a save and beats the crap out of all the andersons and they, they run out of the cage
1: as simultaneous aneurysms yeah and it's like <laughs> we, we
2: didn't even know he was here so yeah. he, paul was legendary for doing stuff like that like he would kind of disappear and then kind of come back especially in about this era like before he turned heel in
0: 1977 jones headed down to wrestle for Georgia Championship Wrestling for several months, feuding with Dirty Dick Slater and winning the NWA Georgia Heavyweight Championship. After turning hill, Jones teamed up with Baron Von Roski. The two of them won the Tag Team Championships in 79 two times, and they feuded with people such as Flair, Mulligan, uh, Jay Youngblood, and Mr. Steamboat. Jones briefly returned to Florida in 80 performing under a mask as Mr. Florida
2: which I don't know it's going to be tough for me to do a full deep dive the whole Mr. Florida thing is of the lines of the Mr. America, the Midnight Rider, <laughs> Yellow Dog in that Who is this? Who is this man <laughs> when he's clearly wearing Mr number one tights <laughs> or PJ on his trunks and they're like who hello Mr Florida and the heels coming out that's Paul Jones and he goes no I'm Mr Florida uh, like I cle-
1: guess the ultimate is Andre uh gy machine machine, Jai 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 machine. machine. Jai oh, machine.
2: Yeah. but yeah it's just that In that vein, I don't know if if Mr. Florida was the first of all of that or it was in the time of all of that or who was the first like, no, I'm this guy. No, you're definitely that guy Uh, Uh, gimmicks, which uh, Mr. Florida is is a gimmick that George has used multiple times before. He has a Mr. Florida hood and he'll put it on. (laughs) And even (laughs) to here's the funny thing. George runs EWA and he was the champion as Mr F- as Mr Florida <laughs> and then he booked a match where it was George South mist versus Mr Florida so what he did was he uh, he just gave Charlie Dreamer the Mr Florida hood and goes you're Mr fuck. Florida <laughs> and then he won the belt back as George South
1: <laughs> i never really thought just thinking about pro wrestlers and how they emulate stuff and pay homage but it's almost like I just, with movie shit, I just think of Tarantino and all the stuff he took from Asia and Brian De Palma and all the Hitchcock stuff. It's like pro wrestlers are just like, nah, you're just going to be this other guy and I'm going to wrestle myself. It's going to totally work out because I love this so much. I'm going to do it in the ring. Yeah. It's amazing.
2: I don't know if it was this particular run in 80 or it was the previous run in Florida but it might have been the run with mr with with mr florida i couldn't nail this down as well specifically in my research with george which was about my only (laughs) research yeah (laughs) but there was a feud with mass superstar where mass superstar took a lit cigar and put it in paul and or mr florida's eye wow and it like caused this big outrage like there was like the crowd really came up for because they, they love they love paul so much yeah. and they just it, it inside of this huge shit. yeah there was this whole angle and those two used to laugh <laughs> that like we did this million dollar angle with a 50 cent cigar <laughs> <laughs> like you take the thing that just like yeah man cost next to nothing and we made all this money off of it
1: has there ever to your knowledge been a mr. north carolina
2: I'm sure there has been. I, I almost positive there has to be. Uh, di- it, well, Dixie Dynamite. Does that count? That covers the whole South, right? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Uh, North Carolina
0: is Ric Flair. Well, I it was Larry Johnson. No.
2: Well. <laughs> we Le- no follow-up from Nick. N- no. Let's be clear. Uh, Rick Flair lives in Georgia right now. Okay. Uh,
0: he, he has been. Uh, he's been doing pep talks for like the 49 Yeah. I, what is that? Uh, Besides
2: uh, money. We'll do that podcast soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't oh, know if man. this is staying in. <laughs> uh, also, too, another interesting thing about Mr. Florida. Mm-hmm. During this time, Dusty is in... Basically, full control of Florida Championship Wrestling. And Paul and Dusty did not like each other. And kind of a way to illustrate a lot of the friction that were between the two is when Paul was doing Mr. Florida, the promotion was playing a charity softball game against probably the police or firemen or, or whatever. Right and it was like the wrestlers versus the firefighters or the police officers they, they they used to do that here in Charlotte where they had the wrestlers play against the police department and they used to televise that on TV here wow. in Charlotte like we used to have a tape of it at the high spots office i don't know
1: used if, to cuz oh i'm
2: sure i'm that. sure i'm sure i my, see dusty sliding into home <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's a charity softball game with paul jones And Paul was like a big star in Florida, but he was doing the Mr. Florida gimmick at the time of this charity softball game in Florida. Let's remind everybody in Florida, outside softball, which is where softball is played, is outdoors. And obviously Florida, we don't know how hot it can be. So Paul's like, hey, Dusty, I know we're doing this Mr. Florida angle. I'm already a big star as Paul Jones. Can I just play softball for this charity softball game? For the love of God, so I don't die. As Paul Jones. It's not like I'm wrestling, because we have a whole thing where I can't wrestle, but I just come in and I play softball. And Dusty's like, nope. (laughs) Baby, you gotta put that hood on. And so there are pictures of Paul Jones playing a charity softball game as Mr. Florida... (laughs) Wow. Almost at near death. Wow. Sweating wow. profusely, sweat through the entire hood out in the hot Florida sun playing charity softball.
1: Like, how's Paul doing in outfield? And you just cut to Paul laying down the out in the outfield. Oh, uh, he's doing
0: great. Yeah. What, what a weird tan line a lucha mask
2: <laughs> <laughs> Especially that one. he just got the squares, like right around the face. By
0: 1980, he'd be back in Jim Crockett and he'd get another tag team championship run, this time with. Mass superstar, beating Jimmy, Snuka, and Ray Stevens. They'd trade the belts with Ivan Koloff and Ray Stevens before finally dropping them to the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. In 82, Paul would feud with Jack Briscoe, trading the heavyweight championship back and forth. I watched one of their matches, and it is maybe the best work the leg match i have ever seen in my entire life which is saying something because 70 percent of pro wrestling matches
2: are work the leg matches there's actually a match somewhere online not to give away too many secrets of professional wrestling but in american professional wrestling and most professional wrestling other than mexico but even luchadors have acclimated to the style that we work Uh, the left side yeah and there's a match where jack briscoe and paul jones are working the right side yeah for some unforeseen reason and george saw this match and was like oh they're working on the right side on a couple of these spots i was like oh i can't i can't i can't wait to, to point this out to paul and let him know he screwed up and he was working the right side uh-huh. so he went over to paul's one day when they were hanging out in his later years and he brought up the match with jack briscoe and paul's like oh yeah i remember that match real well and uh georgia goes huh do you remember when you were working the wrong side boom got you <laughs> <laughs> and then paul just stood there stone faced and he just looked at him he goes listen kid when you're good you can do whatever you want <laughs> And andrew's like oh okay <laughs> <laughs> now go Never get mind.
0: me some coffee
2: <laughs> yeah go get me some coffee <laughs> So, but yeah, I, I always remember that, you know, when, when I think about stuff like, you know, well, you told me to do this and I can't do that. And I just look at like young students like, listen, <laughs> this kid, when you're good, you can do whatever you want. By
0: 1983, the business was kind of catching up with Paul. His back was in awful shape and this would more or less end his in-ring run, uh, or at least it would give it a major drop off. And that's when Paul forms... The Paul Jones Army as a manager. Some members of the army include Mass Superstar Rick Rude, Manny Fernandez, Superstar Billy Graham, Ivan Koloff, Abdullah the Butcher, and the Powers of Pain, Barbarian, and the Warlord. And since Paul could cut an amazing promo, he'd be a great manager, great mouthpiece for his roster of villains. You'd also kinda of get the three faces of Foley with Paul Jones as a manager. There was Tuxedo wearing 007 Paul Jones. Ooh, there sexy. was there was Cowboy Hat Paul Jones. And the Collector's Edition, Hitler Paul Jones. Oh. As leader of the Paul Jones army, he'd feud with the boogie woogie man, Jimmy Valiant, which would, right. it would eventually lead to him getting back
2: into the ring in eighty four. Any thoughts on that feud? Well, other than the Tuxedo match. <laughs> and then Jimmy Valiant just coming out with a tuxedo shirt on and Paul Jones <laughs> in a full tuxedo <laughs> and just taking like the entire tuxedo off of Paul Jones. And that's the thing. That's, that's really the only example a younger generation of fans have of Paul Jones wrestling. Cause like, was, you, that
1: was a Starcade or something. Right? Yeah. It was
2: like a starcade. So like yeah. you go in the network, that's really kind of your only example oh, yeah. of Paul Jones. And you know, about this time, George is obviously doing a lot of jobs for Jim Crockett promotions. Yeah. And so anytime George would be wrestling job matches against anybody managed by Paul Jones, George would like be in the ring and tell whoever like, "Oh, throw me out of the ring." <laughs> and he would pr- get thrown out of the <laughs> ring just so he could sell over to Paul Jones, so he could take a punch from Paul Jones. Oh my god. Like that's how big of a mark Jesus. George was. Or he be like or he like he would sell over to the rope so Paul could hit him yeah. or or something just so Paul could hit him and then it, later in years like well after Jim Crocker promotions probably this is probably like the last couple of years of Paul's life George would book Paul to be a manager and one time George had Paul as his manager but then he had something a situation set up where Paul was gonna accidentally punch George and George did something that goes punch me Paul and Paul's like, no, this doesn't make sense. And like, but no, I'm ready. I'm ready. It's so like oh. mid match, they're having an argument, <laughs> and then they fought all the way home. Like
1: this is like this is the equivalent of like, if I got to write a screenplay and Bruce Campbell and I don't know Chow Yun Fat was in the fucking movie. Like that's what George got to do. Yeah, and it's kind and, of amazing.
2: And they also had during this time, they had. Um, NWA trading cards and George had an NWA trading card and they asked on the back like who's your favorite wrestler and George goes to Paul who was managing at this time and still was kind of doing the tuxedo matches yeah. or whatever and, and still coming out and wrestling every once in a while and um, George goes uh, Paul is it alright if I refer to you as my favorite wrestler on the back of this trading card and Paul said no <laughs> 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 oh. Paul was like no I'm not done wrestling <laughs> So George is like, on the back of my train car, it says my favorite wrestler is Johnny Weaver. It is not my favorite wrestler. <laughs> I just want you to know. I just yeah. want you to it is you, not. You it know. is not my favorite wrestler. I love Johnny Weaver, but he is not my favorite wrestler. Paul Jones is. <laughs> and actually, I was going through some 3 quarter inch tapes um, not too long ago, probably about a year or so ago. And it was footage, I believe, from probably 1988, 89, maybe early 90s. And on there, it was there was a tape label, I think Great Lakes Wrestling Association. They had Jerry the King Lawler and Kamala's the main event. And this is obviously around not far Michigan from. Yes, like Michigan you know. and Ohio, but it's closer to Ohio because they had a Cleveland Browns player in the audience, and Jerry Law had this amazing Cleveland Browns, of course wrestling gear. It was it was, <laughs> yeah, of course it was he did it was unbelievable. It was the coolest thing I've ever seen before. And I was just on a car ride with Jerry, and I'm upset I didn't ask him about it because it was cool. You were just on a in a car ride with Jerry Law. Uh, like a couple of weeks ago. Oh, but um, just to throw away, just victim. <laughs> <laughs> But on that same show, there was a match between Ivan Koloff and Paul Jones, and Paul still looked amazing. Yeah, yeah. I was like, "Wow! Like this is I can't believe I unearthed this out of out of nowhere. There's this random match from Paul Jones, and he's just wrestling Ivan Koloff in this this random show out of nowhere." So, he, he, even as a manager and doing these tuxedo matches, he still didn't see himself as retired.
0: By the start of the late 80s, the territory Paul had become a legend in, Mid-Atlantic had been bought up by old Teddy Turner. Paul was mostly out of the ring managing, and I believe he was doing a little bit of backstage stuff when Paul left WCW at the start of 1990, he spent the next few years in the Indies, including Tri-State Wrestling in Pennsylvania and North Carolina's South Atlantic Pro Wrestling.
2: What is that? Oh, I'll tell you all about that. <laughs> Nick is like, yeah, I was. Like, what the fuck? Is <laughs> that? Yeah, it's North Carolina, <laughs> so I'm that? like, I've never heard of. Him. Oh, I've I know a lot about this. So once Jim Crockett Motion was bought up by WCW and when they turned into WCW they were obviously there's this push for them to run more towns that are across the globe yeah. cuz it's T- money, it's, it's TBS and it was even that feeling in in like 88 Jim Crockett Promotions was kind of trying to be more global and push more to like Dallas and California and and Chicago we're going to take over the world so like all of the Anderson South Carolinas the Gaffney, South Carolina, as the Lenore, North Carolina, as the Shelby, North Carolina, as lot of those, you know, stable towns mm-hmm. that drew very well for Jim crockett promotion for all these years, they were getting left out of the equation. And then, of course, once the full sale happened, WCW is becoming a thing. They're trying to be a national brand and they're wrestling in Pennsylvania and New Jersey and all of these other places. So there's this need in this area and there's this demand so i believe it was a collection of i think maybe george scott might have been involved nelson royal was definitely involved um, there's this conglomerate of guys that all came together and they just decided that like we're gonna start running these towns that got left out through the purchase of crockett from by wcw we're gonna start running the Gaffneys, the Shelbys, the Wilmington, North Carolinas, the Fayettevilles. Fayetteville, yeah. And we're just gonna start running, and they're gonna—they were gonna run in like an actual territory, and they actually had like actual people here. They had the Nasty Boys, they had Ken Shamrock. What? Uh. Yeah, he—I think he was—he was Vincent Tortelli here, like the, the <laughs> like the, the famous fight with. The Nasty Boys, where they beat the shit out of Ken Shamrock and threw him in a dumpster, it was when they were working for South Atlantic. Uh It's also where Tatanka got a start, and they brought in, like, Ricky Steamboat to kind of endorse Tatanka when he was, like, Chris Chavis. And so they would run all these smaller towns in North Carolina and South Carolina that that were neglected. And as you mentioned, like, Paul was involved in that, so they got some of the guys that were just kind of knocking around. I think Manny Fernandez was involved, Jimmy Valiant. So, like, they got some of the guys that didn't, go fully over to wcw or got left behind or a little bit older and just like let's get get them in here to kind of pull off of what jim crocker promotions had and they even went as far as the the ring skirts looked exactly like the nwa ring skirts (laughs) when jim crocker promotions used to run it was like the yellow trim on the side with a blue field and then they had the the gold letters that matched the trend wow. instead of nwa they had you know south atlantic championship wrestling so it, like they they they're running it like an actual territory and they're running all the smaller towns and they're just going to do it exactly like jim crocker promotion did in the early 80s and they were eventually going to start building on the course it eventually folded but they had yeah. tv and they were running stuff and like i said i think sandy scott was involved, I I I, I think I said George Scott, but I'm pretty sure Sandy Scott was involved because once that folded, not too long after that, Sandy Scott was involved in Smoky Mountain wrestling, and then Smoky Mountain kind of absorbed some of the stuff that Mm, South Atlantic was doing in in the North Carolina area.
0: So in 1991, Paul Jones uh, retired for good as an in-ring performer. After retiring, he'd open up a body shop in Charlotte, North Carolina, just so he could have one more feud with the Briscoes. From there, he and his body shop relocated to Atlanta. He'd run his body shop, hit the shoot and convention circuit, do some sporadic managing, and just kind of enjoy the life of a retired pro wrestling legend. Paul Frederick died April 18th, 2018, at his home in Atlanta, Georgia, at the age of 75, the exact same day as Bruno San Martino. Oh, wow no official cause of death was ever released to the public but as far as professional wrestlers go dying in your house uh, at a fairly old age accomplished respected seemingly happy not the worst way to go pretty damn good Final thoughts on number one, Paul Jones. To me, uh, anytime we cover someone that literally no one has a bad thing to say about, I'm always very impressed. Like he wasn't in drama, he wasn't in controversy. Paul is someone I definitely missed, seeing as his entire career was before I was alive. But going back and checking him out, he's obviously a great worker. He, He has a great passionate way of talking to get people into the building. To me, I guess uh, the most impressive thing coming from the era that I came up in, I guess, watching pro wrestling, he wasn't jacked on roids, he wasn't wearing tassels and face paint with a million dollars of vignettes and marketing, yet he was able to like stand out just talking and wrestling. like that. That's crazy to me. And he was able to leave a mark on wrestling, on wrestling fans, and on future performers. I will also put him in the top three pro wrestling mustaches of all time behind Rick Rude and Jake Manning. Kiss ass. Fuck you, Joe Ryan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Paul Jones is one of those old school dudes that you watch and you see older footage and you don't get the full angles or everything, but you see the matches and you see how fucking over he was and you know right away that he had a connection with the crowd. You know that he sucked them in, told a story, he rocked his baby face a gimmick for all it was worth, and he made them care so much. He beat the hell out of the heels, and they cheered and cheered. And he knew how to story hell his ass off. Like we said, Paul. I mean, he was a good looking dude. He was he was built. He was quick. He was he was that identifiable look that the every man in the crowd to be like, yeah, man, I'm in there beating ass. Him and Big John Stud were engaged in the best and longest bear hug I have ever seen in my life. They milked it uh, like standing up, then they milked it on the knees and then it went to the mat. They're laying on the mat doing the bear hug and it was it was impressive. You got to see where things come from to where they are now. And I think Paul Jones is a great example
2: of a dude who had so much talent in so many areas, you you guys have have gushed over him, and, and I could just repeat the same exact thing. But when I think of Paul Jones, I have I have to get this out into the world very clearly and let everybody know about this specific thing, and it is Paul's finish: the Indian Deathlock.
1: Oh yeah,
2: <laughs> airplane spin, dump the guy off, Indian Deathlock. Everybody. It gets it wrong what the Indian deathlock looks like because everybody's doing the Indian deathlock the way that Harley Race does the Indian deathlock. Which, okay, that's a variation of it, but that's not the way that Paul Jones does it. I've seen people put pictures on Instagram and go, Oh, Indian deathlock, you know, tribute to Paul Jones. Like, nope, that's not how Paul did it. <laughs> that's not how Paul did it at all. And just to kind of give you a little bit of history of the Indian deathlock, it was a hold that. A lot of people think started with a native american wrestler who may or may not have been native american (laughs) is that's the way wrestling was Uh, a guy by the name of chief bald eagle or something eagle to that extent and then jack briscoe picked it up but jack was the one that was kind of showing it to paul and they were using it in their feud together and the variation of it from everything else because the way that harley does it you know it starts off like the figure four and you end up kind of on to the guy's side like almost like you make an l with the guy's body and then you're pushing your foot up against the guy's knee it's not the way that paul did it it starts off the same way with the figure four where you do the turn and then you take the foot and you tuck it in the opposite legs knee pit but here's a little trick you take that foot that's wrapped around all that and you just take your foot and you put it in front of that person's foot that has the their foot tucked in the knee pit, and then you push that in a little bit. So therefore, you've got their legs wrapped up with one of your legs. Yeah. And then you like stand... It's
1: ankle present against ankle? Yeah. Right. It, it,
2: it, it, and... and you get it in there and then you fall backwards. And then you take like a bump backwards, like you, And it, so it looks a little bit like a figure four. Yeah. I've even heard people, when I do it, people are like, oh, he's got the trailer hitch. I'm like, mm, no, not really. <laughs> it's not at all. It's actually the Indian death lock. I've, I've only seen one other indie guy do it like that. And he was trained by Susan Green. So like, it's just like, you see somebody who's trained by like, like an old, old timer. Like that's that's the way the Indian Deathlock was. So the way Harley did, I always felt like it was like a like a little mistake. Like Harley like heard Jack Briscoe talk about doing this, and I was like, I think I got it, and he did it, and then everybody saw Triple H do it on a pay per view, I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's the Indian Deathlock. Yeah. It's not the case. It is not the case at all. And George learned it from Paul, and then George taught it to me. So I've always been very protective of the Indian Deathlock, and I always try and use it at appropriate times. Like I just I just happen to have a little spurt in my career where all of a sudden I've had three heavyweight title matches in the span of a month. Yeah. And each one of them I've gone out of my way to use the Indian Deathlock. Just kind of as like an homage Sorry, to not to butt in but have you finished with it? I mean, I was I was going for the finish. I had the guy lined up, and yeah. then a guy jumped off the top rope and gave me a frog splash. Oh fuck. On top of me while I'm in the Indian Deathlock, which a lot of people don't know. When you lock in the Indian Deathlock properly, you're lying down. You're lying down like you would for a Figure Four. So, guys, that's why I don't do it very often. Because when you lock in, guys, you know, especially if you're locking in as a heel, they're like, oh. I'll just reverse it like Flair and the figure four. No, you'll die. You will die if you try Everything and reverse. To yeah, when you see the way that I lock in, which is the way that Paul locked it in, it, it it's it's remarkable to see. And if you ever think about reversing it, and guys have been locked in it, they're like, oh, that's a legit hold. <laughs> but really, my leg is just wrapped around you just, just so. I have you with one leg, and that's the amazing part of the entire hold. And what paul always would do is if the guy reached the ropes and grabbed the ropes you know if you have the figure four you can get out of it pretty easily and the the guy who's got got the hold applied you know he would just pop up and get out right what paul would do with the indian death lock because it was so dangerous is he once the guy reached the ropes he'd have to tell the referee like you have to unlock it i can't unlock it you have to move my foot, right like, because it's that dangerous. Yeah, if I try to move. cut our
1: legs off. That's yeah, like
2: he had such a a believability behind it. It just goes speaks to like how much care and craft yeah. to to everything that he had. they he had that much craft behind the Indian death lock. They're like, no, no, no. I can't release the hold. I have to have the referee release it. But yeah, it's just one of those things. Every time I lock in the Indian Death Lock the way that Paul did. It always makes me think. And then when I see people do it wrong, it just it makes me think about how misunderstood and how we don't really understand this guy who is regarded as one of the best ever by some of the best ever. Yeah, and that's what I think is nice about this podcast, so we get to shine a light on that. So as, as my th- final thoughts, I just wanna let people know, what you think is the Indian Death Lock is not the Indian <laughs> Deathlock. Watch some Paul Jones. I or, think there
1: is some YouTube footage of him applying it properly and yeah. stuff. So go look that go, up. Go
2: go look that up. And let's bring that back. So let's just have all you young kids start doing the Indian Deathlock properly. If I could do anything to change <laughs> professional wrestling, just have all the young kids actually do the Indian Deathlock properly. just the
1: world in general. Let's and, make the Indian Deathlock the new super kick.
2: Yeah. Let's make the Indian <laughs> Deathlock the new super kick. So oh. hopefully this podcast can do that. It's called the Criss Cross.
0: Applesauce, Deathlock, you racists. <laughs> All right, so if you enjoyed this episode, head over to our Patreon, where you can support this podcast like the parents of a millennial with 15 college degrees. Patreon.com slash 10 pod. You can also support us for free by leaving us a review wherever you're listening to this. Follow us at Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. We'd love to hear what you think about these episodes. Leave us some feedback. Find us at TimbellPod.com. And this podcast is part of the Six Squirrel Studio family. You can find Jake at ManScoutManning on all the social medias. Micah is JTrotter27 on Twitter. And I am Nicolessa on all the social medias. Bye. hello tim bell pot listeners thanks for listening to this episode but i wanted to take just a second to give a big shout out and an even bigger thank you to a few people that have donated to our patreon micah the man scout and i would like to say thank you so much to rebecca foster damian lumadu margaret taylor and miles kane whether you gave a dollar or fifty Every penny gets us a step closer to the goals we have with this podcast, including doing more episodes, switching to weekly, putting together a live show, and also all the random sketches, shorts, and dumb ideas we've been cooking up that we want to get out there to you. If you'd like to support this podcast, you too can buy into some of our cool tiers we have on patreon.com slash 10 pod. That's patreon.com, the number 10 bell pod pod. Thanks again.